Neve Sessions with AMS Neve. Today we're welcoming recording and mix engineer Olga Fitzroy back onto the podcast, whose recent projects include working on season four of The Crown. So welcome, Olga. How are you today? Yeah, um, I sort of feel I've, it's been there's been a lot going on and not very much at the same time. <laughs> yes, yes, I don't really get what you mean. Uh, where are I speaking to you from today? Um, I'm at my, in my home studio in South London. Oh, your home studio this time, right. And um, yeah, last time we spoke, it was um, deep in lockdown. We were talking all about how the recording industry, of course, was being affected by the lockdown, weren't we? So it's a year on, a year and a bit on. Yeah. You know, things have opened now. What's it looking like now as someone who works in these studios, you know, day, day in, day out, and is very involved, obviously, with that side of things being, you know, you work with the MPG and everything. So when did it return to some kind of normalcy what's it been like being back well I think all the studios returned after the first lockdown um, and the MPG helped to write the guidance to keep people working safely we were working together with the musicians union and other trade bodies Um, so sort of since since last June people have been working but at kind of reduced capacities Mm. Um, now obviously there's no kind of legal limits on how you can work but still, I think most people are being very cautious. Again, I was involved in writing the latest edition of the guidance, which still has a bunch of mit- mitigations, including distancing, um, if the risk assessment supports it, because people are still really keen just to keep safe. Um, you know, they would rather have a slightly smaller session um, and clean the studios more often and have slightly fewer people than risk anybody getting ill at work. So I think everyone's taking quite a cautious approach. That's good. That's really good to hear. Um, Do you think people have immediately got used to being back in the studio almost as if nothing had happened or people been maybe a bit cautious at first? I think people are cautious. Um, Certainly like when, when we first came back after the first lockdown, I think everyone was just really grateful to be back and grateful to be working particularly the musicians who would have lost all of their live income. And still now, I think there's still so many gigs and tours that aren't happening this year. So I think the recording side of it has felt like the only constant since last June, that at least there is some work coming in. Um, Obviously, there's some people whose recording work has stopped as well because that would have been dependent on live incomes and touring and things like that. Mm. But at least there's been some recording work. That's true as well. And um, we were talking, I think, quite a lot last time about the support from the government or perhaps the lack of at the time. Did anything get put in place after perhaps I spoke to you? Um, Was there any help available at the time? So I can't quite remember where we were at last time. Um, I know that initially when the lockdowns happened, the first type of support they announced was for employees. And for that, there's about a week where it seemed like there was nothing for self-employed people. Then the following week, they introduced the SEISS scheme for self-employed people and sole traders. Um, so that was super helpful. But I think that only covered about uh, about two thirds of engineers and producers. So there's still like a third who perhaps were directors of limited companies or had just gone self-employed who then weren't covered. So there was still that gap. I know the other thing that we were also asking for was um, more support for recording studios from the government because again they were paying the same business rates they didn't get any of those kind of rates holidays that perhaps hospitality got Um, and some of them were not able to work at all for example the rehearsal studio sector 
and recording studios also had a lot of downtime and higher costs and potentially less work. So we're asking for help on that front. Um, and we made some progress because, again, a lot of people don't really know very much about recording studios. So a lot of studios were struggling to even communicate with their local authorities and make, get them to understand how they'd been impacted. And we actually supported quite a few members in appealing decisions from their local authorities. So we actually helped studios get some support from their local authorities. And we also had uh, quite helpful conversations with the government. We had the one of the culture ministers actually say on the record that recording studios that need help should get help from the local authorities. So that was very helpful for studios, again, trying to access all the different grants that are available at a local level. So it felt like we made some progress on that front, definitely. Okay, it's glad to hear that you, you know, you got somewhere in the end because it was looking a bit dire at the moment. The lack of support, like you said, was just uh, people just really struggling, of course, weren't they? And um, so you're the executive producer of the MPG, aren't you? That's um, still in place. I wouldn't have thought any reason why not. I didn't know if your role had changed at all. That's what I meant. Um, No, executive director. So, yeah, there's five of us um, executive executive directors on the board. Sure. So um, how has that role been over the last year then has it been affected have you had to reshift your focus on everything that you were doing or planned to do before this whole pandemic yeah it's definitely changed massively I think the workload has increased a lot um there's obviously been a need for a lot more advocacy and engagement with the government Mm. um which previously we we didn't really have to do an awful lot um in terms of engaging with the government other than kind of flying the flag as to what brilliant talent we have in the UK and how engineering production is an important part of the music industry. Other than that kind of general thing, there wasn't as much, whereas during the pandemic, there's been the support issues, there's been whether we can reopen, how we reopen, all of that. So it's been a huge shift. Mm, that's great. And I saw um, the recent seat at the table report and the MPGs making strides to increase diversity um, in the last year, increased gender representation on the board from 40% to 60% women. So that's great to see that step in that direction. Um, the MPG and many other companies and organisations were all making efforts um, uh, to try and increase that diversity, weren't they? So why is this such an important focus of the MPGs? And do you think, are you seeing things improve in terms of diversity across the industry, slowly but surely? Yeah, I think everyone recognises that it's important. Um, I also think it's madness for a trade body that represents members to only represent a small subsection of its members. Mm. And I think it actually puts people off if they think we're only there to represent older men older white men who have been established in a certain part of the industry. We were here to represent everybody that works in recording. So engineers, producers, and people from all different backgrounds, people working in all different genres. So I think it's really important that that goes all the way to board level, that we have all sorts of different people from different backgrounds running the MPG. Okay, yeah, I I totally agree with that. And um, in terms of feedback you get from perhaps MPG members or perhaps just other people you speak to, um, are their opinions reflected in what you just said? You know, basically, we don't want to just represent older white men, for instance, and we need some more diversity, or has this come from within the MPG to say, look, we need to shake this up? Both, really. I know that there's definitely has been a perception that the MPG is an old white man's club. I hope that we've right. been able to change that over the past few years, and certainly all of the board are really, we really want to increase diversity. 
Um, we know we still have a lot of work to do in increasing ethnic diversity, both in our membership and at board level. But again, it's something that we're aware of. We're working on it. We've um, just appointed two new representatives to sit on the UK Music Diversity Task Force, uh, both women of colour who've been working in the music industry, hugely respected. So we're really glad that they're kind of helping us on that mission. Fantastic. That's great news to hear. And um, so I know about your background, along with many of your air colleagues, you also did the Tom Meister degree at Surrey Uni, didn't you, which led to your internship at air and this then led to you know 10 years probably more now at air studios where you trained with some of the finest talents in engineering production so what were some of the key things you've learned over the years from your experience of working in this prestigious studio and with such talented professionals especially when you were just starting out I think um I mean, like you said, I got to learn from a lot of different, really talented people, people at the top of their game. So I just got to pick up some really amazing production tips from all sorts of people. I was lucky enough to work with Phil Ramon before he passed away. I worked with Sir George Martin. Um, I've worked with Marcus Drafts. I've worked Mm -hmm. with all sorts of amazing producers, all different genres, Vance Powell as well. And again, people in the UK don't often get to work with that wide variety of producers from the UK and from overseas so I just feel really privileged to have been able to learn from those people. Mm, Yeah absolutely what a fantastic array of different people to work with there and um, before you did this course at uni um, did you always think you wanted to work in the music industry in some way what was it that caught your attention about this or how were you even aware of it because a lot of the people that I speak to say but particularly for women, I suppose, barriers to entry. Why aren't there more women? Why aren't there more women? You know, maybe they're just not aware that there are these jobs out there. But so I'm just curious, what led you down that path in the first place? Well, when I was a teenager, I played drums and bands. So my plan A was to be a drummer in a punk band. And nice. um, as I was studying at college, I kind of realised that actually I preferred doing the sound rather than just being in the band. Mm. Um, so it sort of became quite clear in my late teens, I guess, that I wanted to be an engineer. Um, and after I finished my college course, I realised that I was absolutely nowhere near getting a job in the studio. I remember knocking on some doors in studios in Glasgow and the receptionist just kind of laughed at me. Um, so that's when I looked again at the Tonmeister course. I think I'd vaguely heard of it and kind of rejected it a bit because I thought Glasgow would be a really fun place to live. I wasn't quite sure about moving to Guildford but then at the end of my two years in Glasgow I was like right I need to do something that will get me help me get a job in a studio and I saw that the Tom Meister course had this placement year and they also had a really good record of getting people jobs there's you mm-hmm. know a list of graduates that were working on all sorts of exciting projects so that's kind of what what made me choose to apply for the Tom Meister course. Wow, and it, it clearly played off because, as you've mentioned, you've worked with uh, Coldplay, Food Fighters, Muse, um, film scores, top composers, including Hans Zimmer. So incredible, incredible projects. And do you think if you could have gone back to your younger self, perhaps at uni or something, would you have believed it? Would your younger self believe what you'd be doing later on? I don't know. I guess when you're young, you sort of believe that anything's possible and you don't really have the fear that perhaps you get when you're older <laughs> yeah. but yeah definitely I think I would have been quite starstruck at some of the names um, of people that I've been able to meet and work with. Yeah absolutely I can only imagine what was the first I suppose really big act um, that I suppose one may be starstruck by that you actually worked with in the studio? 
Um, I'm trying to think. I know my first week at AIR, I did a week on reception, which kind of all the new runners did. So you learn the phones, learn who everybody is, learn how it works. And I'm sure in that week, um, I think Robbie Williams came in and then I got sent out to buy birthday cake for George Michael. So that was pretty exciting. (laughs) Oh, that is exciting. And what did you go for in terms of the cake? I think it was like a chocolatey kind of cake. Um, There's really nice cake shops in Hampstead, so there's no shortage of choice. (laughs) I think it was his 40th, bless him. Oh, wow. How amazing. Got a lot of pressure there, choosing that cake. (laughs) (laughs) We get it right. Even though I bet he wasn't a diva, by all accounts I've heard, he was just the most lovely man. Yeah, he was a really sweet guy. I mean, I was lucky enough to later on get to assist on some of his sessions, and he's just interesting, chatty, kind person. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I thought he would be like, to be fair. And he obviously did so much for charity as well, so a wonderful legacy. Um, another great yeah. person to work with. I know you worked, um, you worked as the engineer on Coldplay's Ghost Story, so that went straight to the top of iTunes charts in 72 countries. Um, that's mad. So what are your memories of working on this? What was the process like? So that was quite interesting. So that was what, probably one of my first big jobs after I went freelance, um, and... The band were doing a lot of writing. Some of it was up in Guy's house. So really quite low-key kind of demo sessions rather than booking a big studio and going, right, we're going to make an album. It felt quite organic that they were doing kind of writing and recording demos. And at the same time, they were then fitting out one of their studios. And I was kind of helping with building the studio and doing some recording. And that kind of escalated into a whole big album project. So I think I ended. I was booked first for a few weeks and it ended up being the best part of the year. Wow, incredible. And what was the collaboration process like, if it indeed was a bit like that? Were you working closely with members of their team to get the sound right? How did that work? Um, I mean, Coldplay, because they're very experienced, they've made a lot of records, they know what they want in terms of sound. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's more just kind of trying to achieve their vision quickly I mean, one of the things that we often did was to do sound checks with some of their crew at the weekend. So then when the band came in, everything was ready and sounding really good rather than the drummer having to hit the drums for six hours while you get a snare sound right. We tried to keep all of the sound check stuff outside of the band's creative time so that they could just use their time to write and play together. Yeah, that's a good thing here. I suppose everything's prepared and so they're ready to go. That's, uh, that's, I suppose, something you learn on the job, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And again, they're in a lucky position that they've got their own studio, they can have their gear set up, they've got their roadies who know exactly how they want their gear set up and who can also play a bit. So that all really helps in just getting sound checks done really quickly and efficiently. Mm. And uh, you mentioned this one as well. So one of your many highlights was assisting Sir George Martin on the last ever Beatles recording for the 2006 album Love. Um, How incredible, uh, perhaps even surreal, I'm guessing. So tell me about this, aside from the obvious, why was it so special to work on this? Where did you start? What was the process like? Uh, So we recorded um, a string arrangement that Sir George had written for an early demo of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And it was just an acoustic guitar demo that then George put these new strings onto. And Giles, his son, was producing. And we set up string quartet in the hall. And it felt really special because all the musicians had known George a long time. Everyone at AIR knew George. When I first started, he'd still come into the studio and he'd know everybody's name. So it just felt really nice to be able to do a session with him. And he actually conducted the string session. And it just felt, and he was quite elderly at this point, but it just felt when the minute the music started and he started conducting, that 
about 20 years just disappeared and he was a much younger man when he was conducting. And there's also just a lot of love and appreciation for him and everything that he's done for music from the musicians. So it just felt like a really special moment. Yeah, I'll bet. But it was a real goosebumps moment as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How cool. Um, and um, why is this skill set involved in recording, in your experience, and producing a film score and serving the narrative of the, pi- of the picture, a different approach to, you know, compared to a single mix or an album? How do you approach these different sort of projects and go about doing them? I think there's a lot of similarities. I think you need to figure out what the client wants and try to get get that as quickly and as efficiently. Mm. Um, obviously, in film music, it's not all about the music. The music is there to serve a narrative. It's so there are things that are more important than what the composer thinks. And generally, that might be what the director thinks and what the producer thinks. And hopefully, all those things will align and the director and the composer will have worked together so they've got a shared vision of the music. But definitely you will make different mix decisions when you're mixing something to picture with dialogue than you might if you're just mixing it as a standalone piece of music. Um, And in terms of workflow, I think in film music, you've got a much more strict schedule and you've generally got a plan of exactly how many pieces of music you're going to record and how you're what the instrumentation is going to be. All of that will have been set up and planned beforehand, whereas a band session will be a lot more free flowing. You might not know what songs you're recording that day. You might not know the arrangement. You might not know how many overdubs you're going to do. But I think in terms of setting up the recording session, I think a lot of the same principles still apply. You want to minimise the time spent doing kind of technical things while the musicians and other creative people are in the room. You want to just maximise the recording time. Mm -hmm. So on an orchestral session, that would mean the day before doing all your technical checks and making sure it's all working perfectly, all your Pro Tools sessions are correct, all the click tracks are in the right place, all your mics are working, and you've got enough options of mics set up so that if the composer goes, oh, that's a bit too ambient, can we change the perspective, that you're able to do that without resetting the whole room. And I think the same thing applies with bands. Like I was saying before, you'll do sound checking if you can while the band isn't there, getting getting it sounding as mm. good as possible. And again, have having a bunch of options there. So if the band go, oh, can we change this sound? Can we do that? That you can do that with a minimum of fuss and resetting. So I think there's a lot of similarities that you can take between the two different genres. Mm, absolutely. Um, of course, that comes from a wealth of experience. I can tell you're well versed in that from speaking to you. Um, uh, one of the recent shows you worked on, so I've come to this show quite late, I'd say only in the last year or so, and I love it now, was The Crown season four. And of course, you worked on season three as well, didn't you, as the yeah. score engineer and mixer. So now this is just a huge show, huge budget, you know, huge cast, so much attention. So I can't wait for, for more now. I'm fully on board, Olga. But um, so how did you get involved here? What was your process, you know, working as the score mixer and engineer? Where did you start? So I worked with the composer, Martin Phipps, and I'd done a few projects with him before. Um, So I was really chuffed when he asked me to record and mix the crown for him. And um, he does a lot of stuff himself. He's very technical, so he he writes in Logic and he will do kind of pre-mixing in Logic as well of a lot of the cues Um, and obviously his demos these days, pretty much any music for film or TV, the composer will have demos that will get approved before they actually get to the recording process. 
And so Martin and I came up with a process for mixing where we would work really collaboratively. So rather than him mix a demo, send it off, and then me start again from scratch in Pro Tools, just sort of reinventing the wheel, I would actually mix in his logic setup Mm -hmm. and convert his mixes to 5.1 and kind of sometimes they wouldn't need an awful lot doing. Sometimes there is probably quite a lot that needed doing. Sometimes he wanted more of a kind of pop approach to mixing. Um, So it was quite varied, but basically I would take where he'd left off and kind of expand on that, which isn't a way that I normally work. More often I might just take stems from composers and start afresh but this is like a different way of working and it seemed to work really well Mm, absolutely and when you were brought on uh, for season three had you seen the previous seasons at that point or did you have to do some binge watching no I had actually watched them at that point and again like personally I'm not a big royalist but I got obsessed with seasons one and two so I was Same, really yeah. excited to work on the subsequent seasons yeah definitely oh amazing I know um season five I guess it's in the works I don't know I know there is going to be a season five whether they've started it or not is unknown well perhaps you do know but it's are you going to be involved in season five uh, if you're allowed to say or is that not known yet um I, d- I don't know yet yeah okay. I don't know yet TBC we shall find out in time <laughs> can't wait for that one by the way and um obviously air uh, huge history with air you did uh, you know you've been working there for ages you joined the roster didn't you air management 2013 and of course air has an enviable collection of unique Neve consoles so you know from the 88R and of course the famous air Montserrat console so which one do you use or which ones do you use which ones are your favorites um the studio in the, the console in Studio One, so the, the custom Neve that is from, I believe, 1979. I think there's only three of them made in the world. Um, so George Martin was involved in the design of the EQ. Mm-hmm. And to, and it's got the Air Monster at Mike Breeze. And to me, it is still the best sounding console that I've ever worked on. Um, anytime anyone comes to demo some new Mike Breeze, if they demo it in Studio One, it's just a waste of time because they're the best sounding Mike Breeze. And even rough mixes on that desk, if I take them away to another room, it's sort of hard to get that same sound. Even if the balance might not be quite right, the actual sound of it is just amazing. Um, And on a few occasions, I am lucky enough to get to mix on it. So I think I did a jazz score with Roger Edo a couple of years ago. And I basically sort of at the end of the day were like, oh, yeah, we need some mixes as well. And I just had the balance up on the desk and just ran ran off my monitor mixes and that's what was used in the score and it's just so satisfying to be able to use that desk in that way that's definitely my favorite desk mm, okay yeah I've had a few people give that answer I'm not surprised given its history and everything but um yeah. what is it about the sound of this console I've asked this to a few people because I'm guessing you've used a few consoles and a few different Neve consoles probably over the years you obviously keep returning back to this one or wish you could use this one or it's your yeah. top choice what is it about it Um, It's kind of hard to put your finger on it. I think it's quite transparent, so there isn't much added noise, um, and it's a very open sound. The EQs are really nice. So it's almost like it's not really adding very much, and that's kind of what you want. You want a really transparent sound. Um, And, yeah, it just, any time I've AB'd it with anything else, it it always wins. And does it feel special to use it each time? Do you get almost blasé about it and have to pinch yourself? I mean, in a way, it feels like I've been spoilt by being able to use that desk so much. And because 
I've also done, I do a lot of kind of TV work. I've also worked a lot with composers that um, have kind of smaller, quite quirky lineups like Stephen Warbeck. So I have worked in that room an awful lot. And that's kind of my benchmark. Um, and I'm often like, other oh, desks aren't just quite as good. Um, yeah, so I've just been spoiled by it, really. I wish every desk was like that desk. Yeah. Um, you know everyone else I know loads of people that don't have access to it would you know what they would do to get their hands on that console just for a moment right (laughs) (laughs) and um do you prefer one Neve desk over another or find one more suitable for say film score work compared to working on an album or a single yeah so I mean that desk in one is obviously amazing but it is limited in its capabilities the amount of channels that it's got so for bigger score sessions um, the 88R in the hall is perfect, um, particularly when you've got a bunch of different elements and you need to mix multiple stems at the same time. I remember we did a Doctor Who session a couple of years back that was a kind of a James Bond style kind of score. And we recorded it live with band in the booths and orchestra in the live area. For that sort of thing, you you really do need the capabilities of the 88R. So yeah, and it's a great sounding console as well. I'm not not knocking it at all. Mm. So oh, no, yeah, I think they've they've both got their place. Yeah, absolutely. And did you use one of the Neves for um, season four of The Crown? Um, yeah, so we did. Um, I'm trying to remember where we did the sessions. I season four was the first session after lockdown, actually, and I think that was in the hall. So that would have been the 88R. Mm. Um, we've, done, we've done a number of sessions, so I think we've probably done some stuff for the crown on the desk in one, but we've definitely done quite a lot in the hall. So it would have been the 88R that we used for that. Oh, okay. And what did the 88R bring to this project? Why was it such a good desk for the crown in particular or what you needed it to do? I mean, it's it just does, it, again, it's reliable. It does the job. The mic pre sound really good. I mean, the last thing you want on any session like that is the desk to get in the way. You just want it to mm. work. Um, I know it's kind of, it's not a very inspiring thing to say, but you just want it to work and sound transparent. Um, the mic pre's in the hall are the Air Montserrat mic pre's. So again, really good mic pre's. Um, and especially for some of the music in the crown, some bits are quite exposed. So there's some solo horn bits um, in some of the scenes that, there's not, not, not an awful lot else going on. So you just really need the console just to be completely transparent and not add any noise or anything. Um, so you can hear the amazing horn playing and the amazing acoustic of the hall. So, yeah, that's kind of, it definitely lends itself to that. Yeah, wonderful. And, of course, Neves are well known for their transparency, so I can definitely see why it, it was suited for that on Olga. So what about, um, what are you working on at the moment, if you're allowed to say, or what have you got coming up for the rest of the year? What's keeping you busy at the moment? Um, quite a lot of things. I don't know if any of them have been announced. Um, so I've got a series for HBO, I've got a series for Netflix. Um, but yeah, I don't know where we are at with announcing any of it. So I'm probably not allowed to say what they are. Okay. Um, and I've got a bit of bit of Doctor Who um, I'm working on as well that's coming up. Okay. Oh, exciting. Well, yes, we don't want yeah. to get you in trouble with HBO at all. So uh, we'll keep <laughs> we'll keep it stum on that front as well. Uh, we don't want the lawyers coming after you or anything scary like that. So well, it sounds like you've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Um, and I guess it, it remains to be seen about season five of The Crown. But um, I'm sure you've got loads and loads of bits <laughs> to be working on uh, and at your own studio in the meantime. So, um, well, thank you so much for talking to me again, Olga. It's lovely to talk to you on the podcast as always. Um, I hope you have um, a wonderful week and I look forward to seeing what you come up with next. Perhaps we'll talk again in another year's time and see what's happening then. (laughs) 
Brilliant. And I hope we don't need to talk about lockdown again. <laughs> no, I hope so as well. I really hope so. It'll be a very different landscape by then. Let's hope. It must be. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. It will be. Let's be optimistic. It will be. It will be. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Thanks, Olga. Brilliant. Thank you, Alice. Cheers. Welcome. Bye. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.